Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. We have been uh, taking a look at the parables in the book of Matthew the last couple of weeks, specifically the way that Jesus uses this device. Sorry, I've got a little mechanical problem here. The way Jesus uses this device of the parable, this, this metaphor, this way of explaining how his kingdom works um, to the disciples and to the people who are listening to him. And I find that his parables are often so amazing and thorough because they speak with uh, subtlety, but yet there's really a lot of depth. And often in the parables you can find yourself or others in them and you see how Jesus even relates to you. But specifically, the parables are often explaining how the kingdom of God is at work, how his kingdom rules. And in the Old Testament, there is a lot of talk about kings and lands and law and people. So Old Testament, I like to talk about this, especially as we walk through the catechism with people. Um, In the Old Testament, it's so important to understand the reality of kings and people and land and rule. And that construct, those realities, help us understand in the New Testament the coming of the kingdom of God that Jesus uses this kingdom, this inbreaking of his rule and reign in the hearts of men, women, and children to describe how God works and what he's up to, his plan and purposes. And so you need these four things, a king, a physical footprint, a group of subjects, and of course laws or rule of the king to see how God's purposes work. Anytime, however, you have a ruler involved, there is the concept of power implicit in all these things. And so we're going to look at a familiar passage, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's, it's often very familiar for us who, are, who have been around the church a long time. Um, but if you're newer to the church or the faith, what you'll see here is this amazing teaching of how Jesus uses power, and specifically how he uses his power to you and to us. Um, A few years ago, Angela Kay and I got to go to Israel, and we got to see the place where most people, for most of the time, think this feeding of the 5,000 happened, and it's just this simple lake with a simple hill. And it's interesting to think that there were 5,000 men, maybe 15,000, maybe 20,000 people sitting down witnessing this great power of Jesus. So when we think about power, we think, what is it? And who has it? And how is it used? And you may think, but I don't have much power. But you do have some power. So what power do you have? And how do you use it? Power, very smart people say, is the ability to act. And whatever power that we possess in this world is limited. Ultimately, we know that God has the greatest power. And if you wonder how power is displayed, just watch a playground. And you'll see it. It's evident. 
Every culture is consumed with power, either overtly, we want it, or subversively, we really want it, but we don't want to say that we want it. And money is often the currency of power. It's the muscle to act. It is the tool that you can use. So I want us to pray as we look at this passage today and see how Jesus used power to us and to the people hearing him then. So let's pray. We do ask you, Lord, to teach us this morning that as we look at your word, we may understand the depth of your power and glory and see your great mercy to us and how you are truly gentle and lowly. And yet, there is no weakness in you. And so, make our hearts fertile ground that we would receive your teaching, that we would understand how we are to be people of service. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and be our teacher this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in our house, when it's time for movie night... um, Angela Kay and I, uh, we are on opposite sides of the spectrum, as you can imagine. Um, it's time to choose a movie, and all of a sudden, who gets the power to choose comes into play. And it's sort of like, I'm speaking hyperbolically, of course, but uh, it's sort of like that guy that goes, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rub. You know, because we've got a decision to make. Are we going to watch a romantic comedy or a really good story where you need Kleenex? And, or are we going to watch a movie where things are blown up and maybe aliens arrive <laughs> or vampires and werewolves? Either one of those scenarios. And so we have this polar opposite perspective of what kind of movie we're, we watch. And by God's grace, we are able to compromise and we meet in the middle I mean, we, we really work it out. We, we come to agreement, and most every movie we watch, I end up crying. I know Drew Hill doesn't believe it, but I do cry at movies. Now, when it comes to my truck, however, there's 132 cubic feet in that black truck I have, and I rule it without negotiation. It's my kingdom. Nobody's feet go on the dash, including my own. The volume never goes above 12, contrary to the pain and chagrin of my children. It's my little kingdom, and I control that. It's the only place that I ultimately have power, right? Social scientist Elizabeth Hobson said, Um, that she talks about this study of power and this understanding in culture. And she um, talks about a Norwegian scientist who first described dominance hierarchies in 1921. And he did this in a dissertation studying how domestic chickens both create pecking orders and understand their place in them. Chickens peck on those with lower status and are in turn pecked by higher-ranking birds. Hence the term pecking order. And she says that there are many kernels of insight into this dissertation a hundred years later. She quote, quote uh, this professor, anyone who thinks the inhabitants of a chicken yard are thoughtless, happy creatures 
with a daily life of undisturbed pleasure is thoroughly mistaken. A grave seriousness of power lies over the chicken yard. And she says, noting, coming in and being hyper-aggressive may allow anyone to rise to the top of a hierarchy. But if your only method of keeping rank is aggression, the moment you let down your guard, someone else will take over. I think of the second, third, and fourth grade game, King of the Hill, where we'd stand on a little two-foot raised mound and fight to stay on top. Most of our modern social theories talk about power from those who don't have it. And so there's this constant reality that we're dealing with class struggle in our culture. Jesus takes another tact. He reminds us the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, or the kingdom of God has been suffering violence or forcefully advancing, and the violent have been seizing it by force. Any student of church history knows that our history is littered with the reality that there are constantly two kingdoms in play. The kingdom of man, which constantly thirsts for power, and the kingdom of God, who holds the power and sets people free. So in this story today of the feeding of 5,000, we'll see the beauty of Jesus. What does Jesus do with power? What about you and power? What are the ways that you yield the power that you have? And some of you may think, I have very little power. But we all have some degree of power. There are different ways. Some of us use power to force or convince people to behave a specific way using threats, conditional rewards, or facts, often one-sided. Um, this summer, we stayed home for a staycation, and it was great, but um, the, my teenage boys weren't so happy because I said, your room is changing. <laughs> We're not going to live like slobs around here anymore. And they were like, oh, there's a new sheriff in town. It's no fun anymore. And a great weeping and gnashing of teeth happened for about two days. There's also positional power. When others comply with your decisions or suggestions due to your title or your job responsibility or your expertise, or even relational power where people trust you because they like you or they appreciate you, all the ways that we utilize power. Today's passage helps us see how Jesus uses it. In the feeding of the 5,000, if you understand the context of this passage, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things going on that I want us to see. So first of all, there are two miracles that occur in all four Gospels. Think about that. All of the Gospels give some miracle of this or that or some story showing Jesus' power or his authority. But all four contain only two of the same stories. Chronologically reversing it, all of them contain the power and the miracle of the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. And the same power, Paul tells us, that was at work in Jesus to raise him from the dead is at work in us. So that's one of the miracles 
the most important, obviously. But the second one is the feeding of the 5,000. So you might want to start thinking, if there's only two that appear in all four Gospels, why is it these two? If we look at a comparison of the four accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, there's, there's a general sense of the same things that occur, but there's some differences and some nuances. Generally, this is what we see in all of them, the commonality. Jesus goes to a certain place or a remote place or a wilderness, if you will. You'll see that in a second. And he's met there by a great multitude numbering at least 5,000 men. Now, we know that that means there's probably 15,000, 20,000 or more estimating men, women, and children. So, so that, com- that happens in every story. There's this need to feed the crowd that emerges. There's only five loaves and two fish available for 15 or 20,000 people. Jesus takes this bread and he offers and gives a blessing of thanks for it. Food is distributed and all the people eat until their hunger is satisfied. And lastly, there are 12 baskets of leftovers collected. Matthew and John help us see more definitively why this miracle happened. They give us a little bit more insight. So we're in Matthew today, but I'm going to borrow a little bit from John. In Matthew, at the beginning of this chapter 14, which we didn't read this part, King Herod murders John the Baptist. King Herod, this coward and tyrant, a power abuser, unjustly murders an innocent man. And consequently, Jesus, upon hearing this, takes the disciples away to a remote place, or as some would say, out into the wilderness. And the crowds follow him. In fact, um, as he even withdraws from that remote place to go to another place later in the passage, the crowd follows him along the shore, probably sending word ahead. So even when he arrives at a second site, there's already still a large crowd assembled. He feeds the people, and in John chapter 6, verse 15, this is what Jesus This is what John says. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So look at this. Matthew is telling us that there's this evil king, this tyrant who abuses power and acts unjustly. And the very people who have come following Jesus, wanting him to do a miracle for them, are at the end thinking in their hearts, we're going to take him by force and seize him and make him become our king. If this doesn't show you the reality of the thirst for power in humanity, there's not many other passages that can explain it as well. So what does Jesus do and how does he respond with power? I want to um, put forward three things for us today. First, He uses his power to heal. His power motivates him towards compassion. Jesus, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, uses his power to bless. Think about that. Matthew says when Jesus sees the crowd, he knows full well most of them are there to get something from him. 
but he still feels compassion for them. His, his insides are turned out for their brokenness and their weakness. The author, Dane Ortland, who wrote a book a few years ago called Gentle and Lowly, talking about the disposition in ministry of Jesus, writes this. He says, We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. Just make them your roommate. He didn't say that. I said that. (laughs) If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. But with Christ, our sins and our weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. See the major difference. Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And he sees people who are lost and broken and even people who hurt others. And he sees them without a shepherd and he blesses them. That's the difference between Jesus' love. Even knowing that the very people he's choosing to bless would reject him. The most amazing quality of Jesus' love is that he can absolutely love his enemy, and yet he's obligated to trust no one. That's the first thing that Jesus does with power. He heals. When he sees the crowds, what does he do? He heals the sick. He lays his hands on them. He touches them, and he restores them, even people who are only there to get something from him. Second way Jesus uses power is he uses his power to feed the people physically to demonstrate a greater spiritual reality of his identity to come. We like to refer to that in some ways as with the phrase sacrament. It's, a, it's an external sign of an inward reality. Jesus feeding the 5,000 wasn't just purely functional. People are hungry and they need to get them to food get them food. Jesus fed the 5,000 in the physical realm to demonstrate something about the spiritual realm that's really at work. Matthew 14, 15 says, as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place, again wilderness, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replies, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Rather than let them go away, Jesus tells his disciples to give them food. In John, it says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do in this event. He already knew he was going to announce his kingdomship and his power in this Miracle. It wasn't just accidental like, oh no, what do we do? 
well, let's ask Jesus and he'll do a miracle here, plan, plan B. And interestingly, he was testing the disciples, the Gospel of John says. He was testing them. Do you understand your insufficiency and what I can do with your insufficiency? And oddly enough, it's a poor young boy because it says he has barley. Barley is the food of the poor at that time. It's now very cool to use barley because we have craft breweries all over the country, but not then. The famous English writer and moralist once quipped, barley is the grain in which England is fed, in, in which England feeds to horses, and in Scotland it's fed to people. Well, I'm Scottish, so what does Samuel Johnson know? In every way, by human standard, this boy has no power. Jesus takes his insufficiency and he feeds people to the full. His little loaves of, fish, of bread and fish become a grand feast by the lakeside. Israel was deeply familiar with the people in the wilderness who had been delivered by God and who had to rely and trust on God for their daily bread. And that manna in the wilderness, which would appear by morning and by nightfall, would rot away, never had enough to satisfy them. They had to depend daily on this bread. It was savory and tasty. It was mixed with honey, actually we see, but it didn't last. You see, for the people of God in the wilderness, they had to cultivate trust in God. And it's revealed in the Nehemiah passage and the Psalm passage that we heard read. Psalm 78, 18 says that the people of God willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. Um, I try to either take my kids to school or pick them up. Um, it's much better to take them to school because they're a little bit more chipper than picking them up after school. But my son Ryan has grown nine inches this year. And I picked him up three days in a row one week. And he got in the car every day. And I said, Ryan, how was your day? And he goes, it was good. What's for eat? <laughs> What's for dinner? And that was the first day. Second day, Ryan, how was your day? It was good, Dad. What's for dinner? Third day, uh, how was your day, Ryan? I tested him. It was good, Dad. What's for dinner? I mean, his mind has forgotten that this is the same question he asked. He's hungry all the time. We're always hungry for something all the time. And yet, we have to trust God that he meets our needs and provides. They spoke against God, the psalmist continues, and they said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? In other words, in our modern day, can God really provide for us? Can we really trust God with our livelihoods and our lives? Can we really do that? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Oh, by the way, a miracle. Streams flowed out abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? Does God have that power to provide? Jesus displays his power and this power by taking them to the wilderness, verse 15, a remote place, 
feeding them to the full so much that they had to make leftover baskets. Keep in mind the difference between men and the bread in the wilderness. Never satisfied, just enough, come back tomorrow. In the wilderness here, Jesus feeds them so much they were completely satisfied, full, more than they could ask or imagine. And there was how many baskets of leftovers? Twelve. Interesting number. In the Old Testament, there are twelve people anointed with tremendous responsibility when you look at the whole Old Testament. There are twelve tribes of Israel the high priest's breastplate that he had to wear in the temple had 12 stones. Solomon appointed 12 officers over Israel, 12 patriarchs from Noah to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Ishmael had 12 princes. 12 cakes of unleavened bread were to always be left in the temple. Christ, in the New Testament, called 12 apostles. The book of Revelation to present a level of completeness, says that there will be 12,000 people, which is super complete, to talk like my millennial children, um, from each of the 12 tribes. There are 12 gates in the wall of New Jerusalem. I could go on and on. The number 12 appears 187 times in the whole Bible. 12 is the number of perfection. Seven, as we know, is the number of completion. God rested on the seventh day. It's complete. Twelve, however, is seriously a more significant number because it symbolizes power and authority. God's power and authority. Twelve basketfuls. Could have been eight. Could have been nine. Why twelve? Here Jesus displays the sufficiency of his power contrasted with the insufficiency of our weakness. This is why scholars think this miracle appears in all four Gospels. Let's say it was 15,000. That means 15,000 people saw a demonstration of the power of Jesus' ministry. 15,000 saw it, seated on a hillside, eating until they had fullness. This was his great annunciation as who he really was. And for those paying attention, they may see God gave manna in the wilderness from heaven, but here in the flesh, the living, breathing human person of Jesus is truly the bread of heaven. John 6 records, I think, and I think scholarship would second this, one of the most amazing statements by Jesus, in my opinion and others. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people said, Sir, always give us this bread. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, 
And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. His power is used to feed people eternally. Paul says this about the message of the gospel later. He says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So you may say, okay, Jesus has this power, I get it. But I wasn't there on the hillside and I've not eaten this bread and I'm not taking this fish. Paul's saying, if you believe in the gospel, if you throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and you come to him hungry, Paul says, you experience that same kind of power. That power at work then is at work in you now because of your belief. Do you need a miracle to believe? The greatest miracle is the resurrection. The second most amazing miracle is the power that Jesus has to feed us eternally. I think this is why the gospel seems often to travel deepest in places of pain and powerlessness. Because those who are not hungry do not cry out. But those who are hurting and weak and have experienced the brokenness of this life cry out for this bread of heaven. So, first thing, Jesus uses his power to heal. The second thing, Jesus uses his power to feed us eternally. And lastly, Jesus rejects any usage of worldly power for his purposes. And we certainly should be wary of our worldly power. Any power that we have we should understand with caution the dangerous nature of power, whether you are a student who's class president or an office manager or a boss or a clergy person. At the end of the Gospel of John, the people see Jesus as their king, and as I mentioned earlier, they want to force him. They want to force the guy to become their king and rescue them from Herod and Rome And this shows the power of their passion. They hated Rome and Herod so much, they would have sacrificed their lives for this cause. And what does Jesus do with this opportunity? He walks away from this kind of power. He already held it in his hands. And yet he walks away from this kind of power. There's this great scene in the book of Job where Job is asking this hard question of God. And as we know the story, or if you know the story, or if you don't know the story, I commend the the book of Job. It's helpful to have others walk along uh, with you through it. It gets a little confusing at some points. But the book of Job, Job is answering this question. He's suffered tremendously. He's lost things. He's lost his livelihood. He's lost his dignity. He's seen the true colors of his friendships. And at the end, he's asking God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And that's a very fair question. And this is God's answer. He shows up to Job in a storm, a tempest. King James says a tempest. And God says, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider my wonders. Stop for just a second with your question and consider my wonders. 
Job, do you know how the clouds hang poised? Job, do you know how the lightning flashes? Do you know what causes these things? Of course, the answer is we know, no. And in some way, God's saying, even if I told you why, I don't think this side of eternity you could fully understand my power and my purposes. A little later in the book, chapter 37, it says, Out of the north, God comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In His justice, in His great righteousness, listen to this, He does not oppress. Therefore, people, revere Him, for He does not have regard for anyone who thinks they are wise. If He possesses that kind of power to make the lightning strike and the clouds hang in the sky, then He has the power to heal us and to bless us, to forgive us. So this is how Jesus uses his power. He heals, he feeds, and he rejects the power plays of this world. And so how then do we use power? To love him back and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul says in Galatians 5, don't use your freedom, parenthesis, your power, to satisfy your sinful nature. Don't use your power for yourself. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served, to use power, but to apply that power to serve. So brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, go and do the same. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen.